0: You're listening to a climate change this is matt matter and i'm your host and i've got marianne williamson on the program a special treat uh marianne's a best-selling author she's authored uh, about 15 books four have hit the new york times bestseller list currently marianne is running for the democratic nomination she also ran in 2020 uh she ran against president joe biden And uh, Marianne, I understand uh, your run as I ran against uh, Trump in 2020. And my goal there was it was to weaken him so he wouldn't win the general election. And I supported then Biden in 2020 against Trump uh, and started a super PAC to run ads designed to help Biden and criticize Trump. Now, to me, Trump is still the existential threat to the United States and to the environment, And Joe Biden, even though he isn't perfect, he's he's he has done some of the best work on the environment of any of the U.S. presidents. Um, So my question is, why run against Biden if you risk weakening him and increasing Trump's chance to win in 2024?
1: Well, first of all, I believe he's a weak candidate, Period. The president is sinking in the polls. He's at 30-something now. And even on the issue of climate, it's interesting how you described it, because I don't see it the way that you just did. I know uh, that he calls himself the climate president, but I'm sure you're aware that even though there are healthy investments in green energy, in the Inflation Reduction Act, as he continues and rightfully to boast about, the truth of the matter is that he has also done more investment in dirty energy, than those before him. Remember, he is given more oil drilling permits than even Trump did. Plus, he has okayed the Willow Project, the $8 billion ConocoPhillips oil extraction program in Alaska, and he has now approved the LNG project on the north slopes of Alaska. So this is not some climate president. This is someone who uh, invests in green and invests so much in dirty that it actually nullifies the effects of the green. Um. So I don't see where he's some great climate president. And I think the fact that so many traditional environmental organizations have endorsed him is a a sad statement about about the movement. Because to me, that just makes him, makes you almost a conspirator. And I've heard that when uh, asked about that, many of these organizations have said, well, who else do we have? Well, that's just based on a lie because I can tell you based on my own climate plan you do have someone else but these are organizations that want to stay in uh you know they want to stay in the in the crowd with the cool kids uh they want to feel that their uh, phone calls would be returned by the white house even though that may or may not make any difference in what's actually happening in terms of the environment and um I think that entire system absolutely needs to be challenged Young people particularly are not stupid about environmental issues. And when the president calls him a climate, himself the climate president, given how much he's done, i.e. with the Willow Project, i.e. with more oil drilling permits than even uh, Trump gave. You know, my concern, and I do agree with you when you talked about Trump being an existential threat, but I think we're look, looking at this the wrong way. I don't think Trump is the danger. People who love Trump are going to vote for Trump. We could indict him 91 more times. People will still vote for him who love Trump. You could put him in prison. People who love Trump are still going to vote for Trump. Our biggest danger is people staying home. And I think on the issue of climate, that's where part of the biggest danger is. You've got an entire generation of young people. I'm sorry, they're not going to vote for the Willow Project, no matter how many times we talk about how he's done more than any other president. He's also done a lot of damage.
0: Well, certainly, uh, what you're saying is correct. That uh, oil drilling is up, and uh, we are pumping more oil than we've ever pumped ever. And we are the number one oil producing country in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so, to a certain extent, uh, those companies that are doing the drilling are private entities that are entitled under U.S. law to pump oil. Uh, whether that's right or you know is another question, but Uh, Biden couldn't necessarily stop that. He is encouraging.
1: He didn't have have to give those. First of all, he didn't have to give those permits. No, he did not. I I agree with you (laughs) that
0: he didn't have to give those permits. So, you know, hey, I I have to give you a little pushback or else we wouldn't have a show here. Uh, So, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. So I'll ask you the question, how would a Marianne Williamson presidency differ from a Biden presidency on the environment?
1: Well, first of all, I wouldn't lie. Because that's a big lie, the idea that he's the climate president, given the fact that he has given more oil drilling permits. When it comes to big oil, whether it's a Democrat or a Republican, we're living at a time when they fall in line. It's as simple as that. Why is that? Because of all the uh, because of the corporate donations that are given by big oil. Everybody knows this. Whether it comes to environment and many other issues, you need a president in there who's simply not playing along, who isn't one of them, who's only there for one term anyway. So you're not even thinking about whether or not the oil companies will come after you in the ne- in your next election. I think it's going to take a president who is willing to declare a climate emergency. You know, I'm being very clear with people in this campaign about what I would do, and what I would do is immediately begin a mass mobilization for a just transition. From a dirty economy to a clean economy. These these not only incremental efforts, but efforts that are based on this false narrative anyway, is not going to save us. It's time for the American people to recognize the severity of the issue. And we need a president who's not pussyfooting around it. The the, the Democratic playbook that the president deals with is one in which Democratic voters are snookered all the time. They say the right thing. To be honest, Barack Obama started this and and Obama just uh, Biden continues it. They say what we want to hear. And because they say what we want to hear, we then think, oh, well, since he said that since in this case, for instance, he has said that he he sees climate change as the great existential threat to the planet. Yay, Joe, he said that. But then look at what he did and what he didn't do. So with me, you're getting much more blunt talk with the American people. Now, the chances are, given that, first of all, as I know already because of how they're seeking to invisibilize me, there are huge forces that do not want the kind of blunt, authentic talk that I'm having to be present present in this campaign. So therefore, the the, the chances of the American people like waking up to what's really going on in this election And voting for someone who is saying this anyway are less than Joe Biden getting elected because everybody's just going along with these false narratives. However, on the other hand, were to get elected, we'd really go for it because the American people would know that that's what I said. And by voting for me, they would have have uh, said, we are enrolled. Let's get at it. We need a World War II level mass mobilization. And we've got to stop allowing our environmental policies to be determined by big oil. These corporations, whether it's insurance companies, pharmaceutical companies, big oil defense contractors, domain contractors, any of them, they are currently actually more powerful in the way things are actually unfolding in this country than the U.S. government. The U.S. government is just their bitch. That's really what's happening here. And we need a president who will say so and a president who will start to change direction.
0: Well, last time we talked, about two years ago, Um, You recommended we stop using fossil fuels. And my question to you is, how soon can this be done and what's your plan to do it?
1: Well, people can look at uh, Marianne2024.com. My climate action plan is quite extensive. Obviously, we can't be chaos agents. This is a transition that we're talking about here. It's probably 2050 before all fossil fuel uh, transportation elements are off the roads. We understand that. But we can get about it. There's a difference between small piecemeal incremental change and simply a wise strategic change that is responsible, that gets the job done without, you know, nobody wants to be a bomb thrower here. I certainly don't. But we need to turn this ship around.
0: Well, quite frankly, what I haven't seen enough of is that strategically on a foreign policy level, we are well served by getting off of fossil fuels. Because of our addiction to fossil fuels and the addiction of the rest of the planet to fossil fuels, we've emboldened uh, you know, Saudi Arabia, the Middle East, Iran, and Russia, and have fed, you know, billions of trillions of dollars into their pockets just from the standpoint of our own self-interest in a foreign policy standpoint, we should get off of fossil fuels, but that argument doesn't seem to be being made enough.
1: Well, I'm all for being energy independent, but I wanna be green energy independent. I want a massive transfer of resources in the direction of the development of a green energy grid.
0: So how do we individually and collectively uh, beat this addictive cycle?
1: We wake up in time to vote for someone as president, and then also obviously vote for Congress people and senators who are laying it down this honestly and this bluntly and go about making the change. We need a massive transfer of resources in the direction of the development of green energy grid. And we need a mass mobilization, which by the way, would create millions of jobs. But you, without a buy-in from the people, it won't happen. And that's another reason why I believe I could um, as president powerfully contribute to all this with the use of the bully pulpit to inspire people you know america used to do great things we're hardwired to want to do great things and i think one of the reasons everybody's so in such a funk about this country is because nobody even asks us to do great things anymore that would be a great thing it should be something we celebrate it would it would be a cultural shift it would be very exciting but no one's even calling us to it because the people who would call us to it are in the pockets of big oil, and my well, my presidency would represent a disruption of that pattern.
0: Well, I do agree with you that uh, Biden isn't making the case for why we should all get off of fossil fuels as stridently <laughs> as we as he could be making it. He's kind of walking on eggshells. Hey, we'll do some things, but he doesn't want to upset. What is what middle America, whatever he's afraid of upsetting, uh, and he's not making a strong and persuasive case for why this is an urgent effort and requires buy in from the American people. Well, you're listening to a climate change. This is Matt Matter. I'm here with Marianne Williamson, and we'll be right back in just one minute. to a climate change. This is Matt Matter. I've got Marianne Williamson on the program. And Marianne, um, talking about uh, what are the best ways to encourage and incentivize other, other countries, in particular China and India, to immediately cut their level of pollution? Um, you know, I think the last time we talked, you were talking about uh, having the U.S. get its own house in order. And I think You know, you could make an argument that, hey, the U.S. has at least been decreasing the amount of uh, pollutants it's throwing into the atmosphere, whereas China and India have been increasing. We can't we can't possibly win this global battle if China and India don't start reducing their pollution immediately, not in five years from now. That's going to be too late. Right.
1: Well, we should not kid ourselves that we have uh, more power than we do. Uh, over the governments of either China or India when it comes to these things. So I stay with what I said to you before. Let's demonstrate a better way. And there are all kinds of things that China is doing, for instance, that we're not doing that actually help. Look at their 22,000 miles of of uh, 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 high-speed trains. High-speed rail is a great reducer of, of uh, fossil fuel uh, carbon emissions that we're not doing. So oh, they are this-
0: sold. Doing a lot of uh, coal plants that they're yeah. still producing yeah. tons of coal, and you know they they could they could reduce those emissions if they wanted to, and they could stop producing coal plants if they wanted to, but they don't really want to stop polluting.
1: Well, when you said they don't really want to stop polluting, you mean as
0: in? I think uh, this is my thought and this is not uh, an original thought but uh, it's an idea I believe the Europeans are working on and I've I've seen floated here in the US too is put tariffs on products that are produced with fossil fuels or in, in environmentally unsustainable ways that don't meet US EPA standards uh and and so it's a fair playing field that we're going to be
1: I would totally be open to that conversation
0: Right, so it, we encourage everybody to to <laughs> play on this playing field that is yeah. uh, clean and green, and it'd be yeah. good for them, and it's good for us too. So good, um, I like that. Now, um, you had you had on your website the presidency is not merely an administrative office; that's the least of it. It's preeminently a place of moral leadership. And that was uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, 1932. Uh, why is uh, why is that so important? And how do you think that your leadership will change the course of America?
1: Well, I actually think that the environmental issues, the climate change issues, are a perfect example of that. To me, climate change is a moral issue. We have every every time I speak to an audience, I ask people, I say, how many of you are a young person who has said or have heard a young person say the following question? And if the answer is yes, please raise your hand and keep it in the air so that everybody around can look around the room and see. And the question is this, how many people have heard or said that under normal circumstances, I would be thinking of having children. But given the state of the planet, I don't think it would be a morally responsible thing to do. Everywhere I go, at least a third of the room puts their hands up. And in one room I was in the other day, more than half the people. That is a moral issue to me, that we are behaving in such a way that our own young people don't even think they should bring a child into the world. You know, the left, the right has always been more known for issues of private morality, but it used to be that the left was known for issues of public morality. Economic justice to me is a moral issue. Invading a country that didn't even do anything to you is a moral issue. And to me, the environment is a moral issue. What are we doing to the earth? What are we doing? When you look at the consequences that could accrue From the continuation of our irresponsible behavior, you could have whole swaths of continents uninhabitable. Resulting from that would be implosion of ecosystems, implosion of economic systems, could be hundreds of millions for all we know, climate refugees, much greater than certainly Western civilization could absorb. This could be so catastrophic. It could make civilization as we know it uninhabitable you better believe it. That's a moral issue. And I think that someone who has had a career making a moral argument <laughs> sort of has some uh, some some background in knowing how to do that and inspiring people to make the changes that need to be made. Washington is filled with political car mechanics. The problem is we're on the wrong road. We don't need another technocrat. We've got plenty of technocrats here. We need someone who can Inspire the American people to a vision. And the vision I want to inspire people towards is a planet that is repaired, the rivers that are repaired, the ocean that is repaired, the air that is repaired, that you've got right now 46% of our uh, urban water wells are filled with PFAS. I want to inspire people to the effort that this country could make to clean up our water supply, to make all the changes we're talking about, we need to make this as exciting to people as it was when JFK said we're going to land a man on the moon in 10 years. That's what's what's happening in America today. Nobody's inspired to anything because the political system, the current status quo, doesn't talk to anything noble in people, doesn't talk to anything that truly has to do with why don't we do this for our grandchildren? It speaks only to people's self, narrow self-interest. And it also speaks to people as though we're stupid. I want, you know, my father used to say, my father was a lawyer, and he used to say, speak to the smartest person on the jury. I find voters, they're not stupid. The pro, Listen, I see a lot of corruption and a lot to be deeply disturbed about running for president, but it's not the American people. The American people are not the problem. And if we had an inspirational leader who wasn't lying, who was telling the truth, and who said, "And we need to do this," and and convinced people that we need to do this, we would get on the road to doing it. And I believe, whether it's me or someone else, that's what I believe is going to have to happen. And that's not Joe Biden. I'm sorry. And it's certainly well, a sell, certainly a sell, not Donald Trump.
0: Well, that that we can definitely agree on. It's certainly not Donald Trump. Um, well. In terms of uh, spiritual transformation, I I think that you're right, that it required the environmental problem requires both personal and communal spiritual transformation. And, uh, you know, much more so than the moonshot. The moonshot was NASA doing it really for us and us throwing some money. That's a good point.
1: Yeah, you're right.
0: We we need more than uh, NASA kind of saving our ass. That uh, it's not going to that's not going to work this time around. All yeah, of us need to be involved. A,
1: a better you're absolutely correct. A better analogy would have been World War II, and everybody right. need, did need to be involved. And that's what those fireside chats were about. We didn't have um, an army. We didn't have we didn't have the aluminum we needed. Japan was in charge of most of the had controlled most of the places on the planet <laughs> where they had aluminum. And Franklin Roosevelt got on the fireside chat, and he said, I need your pots and pans. We didn't have the rubber and that was controlled by the chats. He said, I need those old tires and those old hoses. People used to send him rubber bands, balls of rubber bands that were a ton. It would not have happened. It would not. We would not have won World War II. And, and, and I mean that in a way that goes beyond just military personnel. Rosie the Riveter. People were involved at every level of American civilization because Roosevelt and Roosevelt knew that he couldn't do it unless he was able to convince people and enroll people. And he did. And that's why he is my political idol.
0: So speaking of uh, people who are heroes, uh, who would who would be on your Mount Rushmore of heroes, not limited to political people? uh, Who would who would you put up there?
1: Well, I don't know about Mount Rushmore. And of course, Mount Rushmore is presidents. But if you are asking me who are the people that I admire politically, uh, obviously, I admire Bernie Sanders. And uh, a figure that I admire greatly today that I think is leading the way in a marvelous way is Sean Fain uh, over at the UAW um, and the way he has been willing to uh, stand up to the big three. The way he has stood up to the big three as a labor leader is exactly the way I would stand up as president.
0: So um, who about who in the environmental movement would you say uh, you'd put up there?
1: Well, I don't know if we call them the um, environmental movement now particularly, but I know Wendell Berry, reading Wendell Berry's books meant a lot to me. So in terms
0: of the top five issues that you think are facing the U.S., what are those top five issues and what would you propose to how, how to address them?
1: First of all, it's the economy. Uh, Back in the 1970s, there was a thriving middle class in this country. The average uh, couple could afford a house. They could afford a car. They could afford a yearly vacation. They could afford one parent to stay home if they chose to. And they could afford to send their kids to college. But in the last 50 years, there's been a massive transfer of wealth to the tune of $50 trillion from the bottom 90% to the one top one percent. We now have one in four Americans living with medical care. We have over a million people rationing their insulin. Millions of people who can't... Uh, by the way, when I was talking about what it was in the 1970s, one salary could support a family of four. Today, we have millions of people who have to work more than one job just to put food on the table. Uh We have Our seniors, among our senior population, half of our seniors live on less than $25,000 a year. That's poverty. So I have, again, going back to based on something that Franklin Roosevelt did, an economic bill of rights. Franklin Roosevelt said that a necessitous man is not a free man. He talked about not only the freedoms of, but the freedom from, the freedom from want, The freedom from fear. We have 70% of Americans who say that they live with uh, economic anxiety. We have over 60% of Americans who live paycheck to paycheck. So my economic Bill of Rights calls for universal health care, which by the way, the majority of Republicans as well as Democrats say they want, tuition-free college and tech school, which we had until the 1970s, and which uh, the majority of Republicans as well as Democrats say they want subsidized childcare, care, uh, paid family leave, uh, uh, guaranteed sick pay, guaranteed affordable housing and guaranteed living wage. Everything I just said is considered an, a moderate position and every other advanced democracy. And those things should be considered moderate in mind. So that's not just one issue here or one policy there. It's a comprehensive view of what we need to do in order to make an economic U-turn. So that, to me, is the most important thing. Secondly, as you and I are talking about, we need a mass mobilization. I I
0: apologize to interrupt you. We're going to have to go to break. But uh, stay tuned, everybody. You're listening to a climate change. I've got Marianne Williamson on the program, and she's uh, one point into her five top issues. So stay tuned. We can change the world. You're listening to A Climate Change, and I've got Marianne Williamson on the program. And Marianne, you were just telling us about the top five issues, and you had just told us about your uh, position on the economy. Uh, please uh, tell us about the other issues you think are the top ones facing the nation.
1: Well, uh, we talked about climate change, the declaration of a climate emergency, the mass, the mass mobilization for a just transition from a dirty economy to a clean economy, That's two. Number three, I want to establish a department of peace. We need to become as sophisticated in the ways we organize and strategize for peace as we are when we feel we need to organize and strategize to wage war. We need to wage peace. We need to declare peace. I want to imagine the planet without war in 100 years and reverse engineer from there. We are skirting the edges of the possibility of nuclear catastrophe at this time. We need to go back to a much more serious uh, stance on non-nuclear, non-proliferation. This is insane. We need to have peace games, just like we have war games. And I think a lot of people don't realize that peace building is a real thing. Peace builders have a certain skill set and that skill set is based on the fact that there are four factors which statistically mean that when those are present there will be a lower incidence of peace and a higher incidence I'm sorry a higher incidence of peace and a lower incidence of conflict those things are uh, greater economic opportunities for women greater educational opportunities for children a reduction of unnecessary human despair and a reduction of violence against women. And I want the Department of Peace to be active with its, we just, we need a peace academy, just like we have a military academy. And we need that army of peace builders who will be active not only in terms of American cities domestically, but also in terms of foreign policy. So that's the Department of Peace. Then I want a Department of Children and Youth because American children are at risk in ways that are absolutely unacceptable. We have children who are traumatized before preschool. We have children in elementary schools who are on suicide watch. We have children all over um, this country who who go to schools where there are trauma rooms. We need to ask ourselves, Mm -hmm. what is going on in America? That so many children are traumatized and one of the reasons they're traumatized, of course, is their own fear that they won't get shot that afternoon. We now know things um, about the human brain and the development of the human brain that we didn't even know 15 years ago, neuroplasticity and so forth, among other things we know that 90% of the brain development is within the first five years of life. So I want a massive transfer of resources into the lives of children 10 years old and younger. If we want the, the kind of country that we want uh, 20 years from now, really thriving country, we need to pay far more attention to our 10 year olds today. And then the last major pillar of my campaign is that we end, need to end America's war on drugs. It was bogus from the beginning. With Richard Nixon, knew it wasn't public enemy number one. We've spent a trillion dollars. I think the drug war has done more to exacerbate the problem than to fix it. When I was in college, uh, there were three hundred thousand people uh, in prisons in the United States. Today, there are two point three million. Forty six percent of all federal drug uh, all federal prisoners are there for nonviolent drug offenses. Those people should be home with their children. And this is not only a, a way to help smash the prison industrial complex, it's also a way to help at the southern border, because our drug war actually feeds the drug cartels. So a lot of the immigration that's happening is people trying to escape the horrifying violence of the drug cartels. By our ending the drug war, we take away a lot of their black market. It'll put a dent in things. Um, we need to treat drug addiction as a health issue, not as a criminal issue, the way we do now. We need to do it the way places like Portugal do it. For that $100 billion that we spend every year, give me a fraction of that and we can have a world-class network of recovery options. Help people get sober. I, I, I don't want a drug czar. I want a recovery czar. And all of those things together that I just mentioned will initiate a season of repair in this country and a new beginning, a new chapter in American history. We need it desperately. That's also the way to beat Trump or whomever the Republican is in 2024, by offering people a better deal, offering people a much better life. We're not going to win in 2024 by just saying, be scared, be very scared. That worked in 2020, and for good reason, but it's not going to work this time. We have to offer something well, that genuinely inspires people and makes them think they could better their lives.
0: Well, I certainly like your idea the Peace Department in particular. That's a great idea and uh, something that we should be investing in. It's crazy that we don't. And, of course, uh, taking care of our <coughs> children is the best investment we can make. So that, uh, again, I, I appreciate the end of the drug war. I mean, I, I get uh, why we should decriminalize a lot of this stuff. But, uh, you know, that's probably a longer conversation and I want to pivot to something else. Uh, you've written a lot and spoken about about women as being leaders and uh, how they'd be more likely to protect the environment. And I, I generally tend to agree with you. Um, I also have uh, had a history and I've represented over 200 different women who've been sexually assaulted and harassed in the workplace And uh, what I've been uh, just stunned by is that the Me Too organization has failed to condemn Hamas's brutal rapes and murders of Jewish women. And I wanted to ask you to uh, join me in calling on the Me Too movement to condemn that act of violence against uh, women.
1: I um, have tears in my eyes hearing you say that. Uh, I am a Jewish woman, and I couldn't agree with you more. Where are the great American feminists? Where's Eve Ensler? Where's all these feminists? Where are all these people who spend all their time? Uh, It's not even just Me Too. It's so far beyond Me Too. I couldn't agree with you more, and thank you for saying it.
0: Yeah, I I mean, I believe that, uh, you know, women have to stand up. How can they allow uh, this to happen to any woman? It, to allow this to be happen to any woman is um, is just a violence that would only exacerbate this against another population of women. You know, if if this is green lighted as to a group of Jewish women, it will be the norm as to the next war. You know, uh, so this violence is not going to get any better. And uh, if you have principles that women should not be violated. It it has to stand for all women or else it's a farce, but.
1: What happened that day goes so far beyond violation. It was pure evil. It was barbarism. I defy anyone to read those articles. And, And still some of those people are saying we don't have the evidence. Oh, we have plenty of evidence. Read one of those articles. And I, I don't know how anyone can it's unbelievable how what's happening
0: well I certainly uh you know join with you in standing up uh to anybody who's denying this and uh, I appreciate your your stand on that uh we've certainly seen a share of toxic masculinity and that was the you know archetype that's beyond that
1: no that's pure evil that was Isis these are people are like Isis and there are people actually apologizing for Hamas right now there are people making excuses for Hamas. You know, you you can have tremendous uh, uh, empathy and compassion uh, for Palestinians, which I do. You can uh, feel very strongly about Palestinian justice, which I do and which I've been very vocal about for decades. Uh, You can completely condemn um, Netanyahu's policies, not only for the last 15 years, which I have done, but also this military action. I do. I do condemn it. But none of that should mean that you are remaining silent about what happened on October 7th and very specifically as you have pointed out in terms of the extraordinary evil uh of the sexual violence uh perpetrated and we're talking sexual violence there aren't even words i once again if anybody you know when you it it's truly unspeakable but the articles are out there and this last sunday's New York Times article among others.
0: Right. I I certainly think that anybody who hasn't read uh, that New York Times article needs to read it to uh get a sense of how brutal this assault was because you can't cover your eyes to this. You need to look it in the dead in the eye and and see how extraordinarily uh evil it was. I guess uh turning from that subject uh you know as as difficult as that one is, uh, back to this this race and what, uh, what you're going to need to do in the next few weeks. And uh, you've got uh, Iowa coming up in two weeks and you've got New Hampshire coming up in three weeks. We're going to go to the break right now and we'll be back in just one minute And you can tell us about uh, where you're going to pivot and how you can uh, make a move on Biden in these very important next few weeks. to climate change this is matt matter and i've got marianne williamson on the program and marianne we were just talking about uh how soon iowa is coming on uh, january 15th and um you know the caucuses are a very unusual kind of political event uh what uh, what's your thought as to how those are going and how you're connecting to people in iowa
1: Well, I was in a very different position than it was uh, in the last election. The Democrats have totally moved it. So most of that will be uh, about sending mail-in ballots. And that, of course, begins on January 12th. The actual last day is not January 15th. I can't remember what it is, but it's in February at some point. Um, The New Hampshire primary does take place on January 23rd. And, um, you know, the DNC has from the beginning made it clear that they saw their role as ensuring that Joe Biden would be the nominee. And they have done everything possible um, to silence, to invisibilize, to marginalize any opposing voice, even though 70 percent of Democratic voters have said that they want to hear from other people. they have found willing partners in the, in CNN and MSNBC, which has been a big surprise to me. Uh, I had a CNN t- town hall last time. I, ha- I was on regularly on CNN and MSNBC last time. I didn't expect this blackballing, blacklisting that I have received. And it has the desired effect. Too many Americans don't even know that I'm running. When I'm actually talking to people, I'm just fine. Because actually, mine is the agenda that aligns with the majority of views of the American people. As I said, Americans want universal health care. Americans want tourism, we call it. Americans want uh, common sense gun safety laws. That's on the Republican side, as well as the Democrat. Not as high a majority, but it's there. And so that has hobbled me tremendously there's no doubt about it. People don't know you exist. They're not sending you money. If they're not sending you money, you don't you won't have the money for TV ads. So, I'm staying in as long as I can stay in because I believe that the things that we're talking about on this campaign, including things you and I have talked about tonight, need to be said. And I'm not saying anything anybody everybody doesn't know, but I'm saying the quiet part out loud. Um The traditional political machine looks at symptoms, but it does not look at root causes. And it doesn't want to bring up a conversation about root cause, because if you do, you see how often their policies were the root cause of so much of the misery that people are experiencing today. So I'm having a conversation to which the current prevailing political media industrial complex is extremely resistant. So I don't have any illusions about my ability to override any of that on a on any kind of traditional level. The president has he made it something like a twenty five million dollar ad buy a couple of weekends ago Um, in uh, uh, New Hampshire. Even now, uh, my opponent, Dean Phillips, is flooding the airwaves with TV ads. We don't have the money for that but what we do have is you know Martin Luther King said your life begins to end on the day you stop talking about things that matter i think there's a hunger in this country there's a yearning in this country for a more meaningful political conversation people in our in their personal lives get real and they get authentic and they get pretty perspicacious psychologically and emotionally and spiritually but when it comes to politics, we've all been trained to farm out our own critical thought processes, to think like a bunch of sixth graders. Um, as though there's some political class who knows better than we do, who treats us like you don't even wore your head a little head about it. We got this. They so don't got this, including the Democratic elite, because let me tell you something, we're walking into a 2024 that's going to be the same kind of debacle that 2016 was. Because there is a complete unwillingness of the democratic elite to recognize what is going on out there. They think they can just hold the lid, put the lid and suppress any conversation other than the one that they've decided is the one with which to win. uh, Usurping a role that is only supposed to be in the hands of the people, thank you, not of a political party elite. And... uh, I'm in the belly of that beast. I understand their power. I understand what they've done. Um, But I'm going to keep as long as I can doing what I do. And that's having a conversation with voters that uh, any of us, if we're honest with ourselves, know is much more real, much more adult, much more mature. And uh, I think much more responsible to the planet and to future generations. And it's an honor to do so. And um, I, uh, You know, a friend of mine said earlier today, and she wasn't just talking about politics. She was talking about all of American society. She said they squash people. They squash people using money. And the message is go away. And it makes people just go away and do what they're told. I'm not that kind of woman. And so I'm holding on as long as I can so that any voter that I can reach, I do reach. And those voters at least will know. That you do have an option. None of this, like, is that we mentioned earlier. These traditional environmental organizations who have endorsed Joe Biden, and when asked, have said, "Well, we don't have any. We don't have anyone else." That's a lie. And I'm going to speak, you know, speak my truth, which is truth to power as much as I can for as long as I can, and I hope that that's a benefit to someone.
0: Well, I, th- I think it is a benefit, and I applaud you uh, throwing your hat in the ring and and uh, being uh, a candidate, because I know how difficult it is, uh, having tried it myself, and it is a, it's a marathon, it's challenging. Um, and I think it's a public service to have this conversation. It's unfortunate, quite frankly, and I think you're right that the uh, Democratic Party elites are shooting themselves in the foot here, because they would benefit by having a healthy dialogue on these issues. It would enliven the party. It would get the young people excited. It would engage them. And Thank you. you know, everybody would benefit from it. And the extent that they feel like it's being squelched, like they felt Bernie was being squelched in 2016, they got really Absolutely. pissed off. And then some of them even voted for Trump which was really, you know, a disaster or
1: staying home or staying home or voting third party.
0: Right. Mm -hmm. Any of any of the above is uh, is a disaster for them. So, yeah, it's it's shocking to me that uh, how much power the news media has and and uh, also, uh, you know, why are they doing this? You know, because there, there's got to be some value to them as a news organization to cover your campaign. You were campaigning at similar percentages to Nikki Haley, but Nikki Haley's getting ink all over the place. And you see her on every news show every night.
1: And Vivek Ramaswamy, who I've been way ahead of in the polls, Chris Christie. Chris Christie's at 2%, he's everywhere.
0: Yeah. So this is this is craziness. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's unfortunate. And, and uh, how do you change that? I mean, it's just, uh, I, don't, I don't know the, you know, give me your ideas on that. I, of course, if you could change it, I'm sure you would.
1: <laughs> you just keep leaning against the wall. Just lean against the wall. Just lean against the wall. Somebody's going to break through. Um, this situation will not continue as it is. It's unsustainable this thing's going to blow. And that's what's so sad about this. This energy that's rumbling in America today is going to fall in one direction or the other. It's either going to fall in the direction of greater democracy, greater justice, a new beginning, a greater social and economic enlightenment, or it's going to fall in the direction of dystopia, chaos, and God help us fascism. And the fact that the Democratic Party elite are trying to put a lid on the conversation I believe has the exact effect that you were describing. You know, Jen Kuger has been saying recently, if we were having, and if they were allowing a robust democratic debate, we would be having a conversation that counters all the stuff that the Republicans are putting out right now. We're letting the Republicans have all the oxygen. We're letting the, Repo- what, what they think they're helping the Democrats by putting on Chris Christie, Nikki Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy all the time, rather than the Democrats. And if and if the president what he's afraid to debate me or Dean Phillips but we think he's going to do just great against Donald Trump
0: yeah it would be a, quite frankly it's a good workout if nothing else you know you gotta well that's gotta... exactly
1: what it is. but that's what a campaign should be that that is what a campaign is I can tell you as someone running and you yourself are running it is a workout every day you're out there you got to get better on the issues and you got to learn how to punch the president is is and and the you know I I don't want to be ageist about this. I'm 71 years old myself. I, I don't want to be mean. But is I mean, it's going to take some punching. It's going to take some punching. It's yeah. not going to be something you can just sit in a basement this time. And, you know, I, I said to an audience today, have you heard the, the president say one thing about what he would want to do over the next four years? Their messaging has no offering of what they would do over the next four years. It's just, you should be grateful for what he did in the last four. I'm sorry. I don't uh, think that's going to inspire a massive vote.
0: Well, thank you, Marianne, for being on the program. And everybody check out uh, Marianne2024.com. You do have a great website, amazing explication of your issues on the website. So everybody check that out, Marianne2024.com. You know, support Marianne and her run as uh, it is a plus for democracy. So, uh, thank you again for being on the program, and uh, we'd love to check back in with you later in the campaign.
1: Thank you very much. I'm so grateful. Have a beautiful evening. Thank you.
0: You too.